You know, it seems like whenever the church gets in the headlines of the newspaper, it's not good. Um, Usually it's embarrassing. I recently read about a church uh, somewhere in this country that the membership had voted to deny membership to a couple because it was an interracial marriage. And uh, you just look at that stuff and you just scratch your head. And of course, the media just eats up those kind of headlines. Or or whether it's, uh, you know, that crazy church that goes and protests military funerals or... Uh, whether it's some anti-abortionist, murderers, a doctor. The, you know, those kind of things get in the headlights all, headlines all the time. A church that splits over the issue of, of ordaining gay pastors. Or whether it's that pastor in Florida that publicly burned the Quran. You know, I mean, the media loves to soak up the negative stories and, and proliferate those kinds of stories. But there's also stories about the church that are different, that are good. I mean, you know, I, I've seen stories in the news. Usually it's in the back page or in the last couple minutes of the, the newscast. But the stories that talk about a, a church impacting their community, whether they're feeding the homeless or doing something nice to aid military families. Or sometimes churches are just known as serving churches. And sometimes churches, there are just churches that are known for doing nothing. And I think we've known a lot of those churches, you know. They just do nothing. And that's their reputation. Nothing, church. What is the church? If you just stop and scratch your head and go, okay, Dave, what is the church? Now, of course, we can see two understandings of the church. There's the universal church. That's all believers, genuine believers in Jesus Christ all over the world for all time. That's the the universal church. That's all, all believers throughout all history all across the world. I mean, it's fun to think about the universal church because we can think about the fact that we're bigger than something ourselves. We're bigger than just Waukee Community Church. We're not the only group of, of Christians in this world. And it's fun to think of ourselves as being part of the universal church. Then there's also the local expression of the church. It's, it's people locally here in Waukee and come to Waukee Community Church who, who have a faith in Jesus and we fellowship together. And, and so there's the local expression of the church. The question always is, in my mind, is how do you know if a church is really a church? How do you know if a local church is really a universal church, right? How do you know if a church is a church? It's, it's very interesting. Jesus talked about the followers uh, of him, how, how we could know if people were really followers of Jesus. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, he says, thus, I think I have that up there, um, or maybe not. We'll go with not up there right now. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7, he says, thus by your fruit, you will recognize them. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. So how then, so if it's fruit, and and by that we understand action, so how do we, as the church, act like the church? How should we act? And the simple answer, of course, is we act like Jesus. And that's great, Dave. Thanks a lot, you know. Act like Jesus. Okay. So we put our WWJD bracelet on and then we go and ignore the fact that we have that on our arm, right? Um, I mean, it's just, this is how, how does the church act? I've asked this question to myself a lot lately because, you know, I'm the pastor of this church. I have a spiritual responsibility at this church. and, And I think of how do we know if our people are living like Jesus? What does the church in action look like? Not not really on Sunday morning. I don't really care about that. It's the other six days a week. What, what, is the, what does the church look like? 
What kinds of things do Christians do? You know, at Waukee Community Church, we talk about how we're a missional church. That's a buzzword today, but the, a missional church just means we send people out. The, the point of the church is not to gather together and have all these nice things for us. The, the point of the church is to equip us as followers of Christ to leave Prairie View School on Sunday and to go out into our lives everywhere to be the church, to interact with people, to love them, relationships. So what does the church look like the other day, six days of the week? Well, for, for that matter, what do we look like on the first day, Sunday of the week? I think that's what James has in mind in the last few verses of James. He's trying to wrap up all of his thoughts in this conclusion here. Now, you remember, I've told you this over and over. James was the half-brother of Jesus. James w- was raised with Jesus. He lived with Jesus, but he didn't come to faith in Jesus t- later, till after Jesus had risen from the dead. It was like the light bulb went on. Oh, that explains it. And James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and one of the most influential early leaders in the church. Um, James has in mind in the book of James that he wrote to a bunch of churches scattered all over uh, the known world at the time, specifically Jewish Christians, but he spread this letter around. And he has in mind in the book of James, I think, to put into practical application the teachings of Jesus. So James just is remembering things that Jesus said, ways that we should live. And he's telling the church, don't forget this. I mean, we see Jesus' words quoted and laced all throughout the book of James. Jesus' ideas and his teachings. It's just saturated in this book of James. And so much of this book has been answering this question, how should the church live or act? In verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, above all, my brothers. James doesn't mean like, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. The, the word really has the idea of, and finally, or to sum it up, or to wrap it up. That's why we start in verse 12 for the end of this section. He's saying, to wrap up everything that I've just said, finally, here it is. Let me boil it all down for you. This is how you should act. This is how you should live. As we looked, as, as I spent, sat down with the message community this week, and we kind of looked at these verses, and and as we kind of try to get, what's the theme? Because it seems like in these verses, James is just throwing a bunch of random thoughts together. And so, you know, like that's a six-point sermon, and that's great, but the six points don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And so what's James' point here in this last final section? And I think the point that James is making here is simply this. We need to humbly submit to God in everything we do. That's the way a church acts. In humble submission to God in everything we do. That's how you act when you should leave. You should act in humble submission to God. As you parent your kids, you do it in humble submission to God. Kids, as you uh, go home and uh, are following your parents' lead, you do it in humble submission because you're ultimately submitting to God. We act in humble submission to God when we go to work. We act in humble submission to God in every area of our life. That's how a believer is supposed to live. Not with pride. Back in James chapter 4, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. And in verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James is, is grabbing those two ideas here, and I think encapsulating this thought, how do I as a believer in Christ act? What do I do as a believer? Everything we do, we should submit to God and act humbly. 
But we're prideful people, you know? We don't like to be told (laughs) that our behavior needs to change, you know? And we know this, that we're all prideful. For instance, you're in a conversation with someone and you notice their zippers down, right? My zipper's not down. Okay, we're all good. All right, so, you know, it's a bad illustration when you're you're the one here. Okay, anyway. So you're in a conversation and you notice their zippers down, right? What do you say to them? Do you come right out and say it because you know you're going to embarrass them? Or do you not say it and pretend it doesn't happen, but let them embarrass themselves the rest of the day until they figure it out? Which one do you do? We know we're, pro- we're prideful. They're prideful. I don't want to embarrass them. What do you do? I once knew a pastor who literally preached the entire sermon with his zipper down and his shirt tail sticking out his zipper because no one would stop him and tell him his zipper's down. So I know that wouldn't hurt happen here. Although one time early on, I did split my pants in the back and no one told me till after the service. Thank you very much, Peter Jaquist. Uh, <laughs> he told me after the service. Come on. Anyway, so what, what do we do? Do, <laughs> do, do we, we all know that we have this pride in us, but we need to act with humility and submission to God. So James has a couple examples. He's going to think through about six things here in, in this last passage that help us to figure out how to humbly submit to God, how we should act. And this idea of humble submission is the idea, I think, that ties all six of these things together. So if you can't find one of these six things to take away from here today, we got issues. All right. So uh, one of these six, you should walk away from here today and go, yes, that's how I should act. The first thing that James tells us is we should act by keeping our word. Look at verse 12. Finally, or above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. It's really interesting. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is just totally paraphrasing. I mean, excuse me. James is completely paraphrasing the words of Jesus here. He's just taking them and paraphrasing. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven or earth, either by heaven for it is God's throne or by earth for it's the footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. All right, so you have to understand in Jesus' historical context, you know, Jesus was never teaching in a vacuum. He wasn't just randomly teaching. Jesus was teaching to real people who were going through real stuff. The Jews had all these laws they were supposed to fill. And in historical context, they had all kinds of ways that they liked to get around these these things. Like, for instance, someone could say, apparently, I'm going to swear by the, I can't swear by the temple and break it. But if I swear by the gold in the temple, it's okay. Right? If I break that one. I mean, it's very much like they were very careful how they made oaths because they would do different things like that. They'd say, oh, aha, I had my fingers crossed. It's okay. I mean, that's the, the idea. Like, I know I promised it, but have my fingers crossed. We're all good. Jesus is saying, just do what you're going to do. And James is saying the same thing. Say yes and do it. Say no and don't do it. 
But don't quit switching your mind around and making promises that you don't intend to keep. Be a person that lives by his word. If you tell someone you're going to take their shift for them at work, I'll take that shift for you. Don't back out. You know, if you tell someone you're going to help them do a project at their house, don't back out. Say what you're going to say. Do, do what you say. Say what you do. Even if it's tough, humbly trust God with what happens. Sometimes we get ourselves into these positions where we don't want to tell people the truth, so we give them a real vague answer, you know, and hopes that that gets us out of it. No, if you don't want to do something, just tell somebody. If you want to do something, tell them and then follow through with it. That's what James has said. Be the kind of person that keeps his word. That's what the church should look like. We should be honest with one another. We dance around each other so often because we don't want to be the kind of person that has conflict. Some of you are conflict avoiders and you know it. And you need to embrace a little conflict in your life. Because sometimes truth brings conflict, and that's okay. You know, it's okay for the church to have conflict in it. It's all right. It's not, good to, it's not okay to gossip and be malicious and slander one another. No, but it's okay for us to disagree about something. You know, I have six lawyers in this church. I have learned that disagreement is okay. It's all right, you know. It's good for us. It's good for us to have a difference of opinion, to talk through it. But we always keep the unity of the body as more important than my personal opinion. Here's how the church should look, James says. With humility, rely on God. Don't try to finagle your way in and out of things that you say you're going to do. Just do what you say you're going to do and trust God. Keep your word. The next thing he tells us, so first it's keep your word. The second thing that he's going to tell us is give God credit. We, we humbly rely on God by giving God all the credit. Look at verse 13. He says, if any one of you is in trouble, is that true? Anyone here experienced that? Is anyone in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. I, I love it. In, basically, James has just said, in every area of life, give God the credit. We should praise God, happy or sad. If you're in trouble, you should turn to God and pray because you acknowledge that, that God is the one ultimately who is sovereign and has control over the situation and the circumstances. And so normally what we do is when we're in trouble, we go, okay, I've got to figure out how to get this done on my own. And so I've got all these things in place and I'm going to finagle and make the circumstances work so that I get in place, get it all done. And we, then when that doesn't work out, then we go, okay, well, I guess I better pray now. And, and James says, hey, no, 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 humbly submit to God. Turn to him when you're in trouble. Now, at the same time, when you're happy, when things are going well, Sing a song of praise. I mean, just be Godward in everything you do. It's okay to, to be driving down the road and sing, you know? Because you're just reflecting as you're driving, the music's playing, sing. People will think you cra they're crazy, but now they'll just think that you've got your headset where they can't see it. It's great, you know? Nobody thinks you're crazy anymore. You're just talking on your headset. Sing away in the car. Sing praises to God. If you can't sing, rap. I don't know. Let's do something to, to allow these praises to God to be lifted up. Happiness. Give God credit for everything. Wednesday night in our life group, um, we were just had a chance with the 
the 12 of us sitting around the, t- the, the living room, to stop and give God praise. We just stopped. It's kind of a reflection from last week's sermon on, on hindsight and re- remembering how God's been faithful so we'll, because we can trust it'll be faithful in the future. And so we just went around the room. How's God been faithful? I mean, it was awesome. It was my favorite time of the night. Just telling story after story about God's faithfulness, even in recent times. God gets the credit. So we humbly submit to him, James says, by keeping our word, trusting him with the results, and by giving God credit for everything. The third thing that James is going to tell us is that we can humbly act. This is how the church should act. We can humbly submit to God by asking for healing. Look at verse 14. James says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're sick, you know what James says you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the elders and have them pray over you. We forget this one a lot as a church. We like to solve the issues ourselves. We don't want to have to submit to God. And we certainly don't want to have to submit to the authority structure of the church. Because, you know, who are they? Or we're too proud to ask for healing. Our elders, did you know they love to do this? They love it. They love it when they have an opportunity to go and anoint someone with oil and, and pray over them and ask for God's healing in their lives. The text says that you have some responsibility in this. It doesn't say if, if any one of you is sick, you should wait around till you know, Thomas calls you and asks you if he can come and pray over you. That, that's not what the text says. The text says if you're sick, you take the initiative and you go call the elders. And they'll come pray over you. It's powerful. Then look at verse 15. Look what happens. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. I think one of the reasons we don't want to go to the elders is pride, you know, or, you know, oh, I don't want to bother them. Really, it's just a prideful response. But one of the reasons we do this, that we don't go to the elders and ask them for prayers for healing, is because we're afraid. At some level, we're afraid, what if it doesn't work? What if they pray over my aunt and she's not healed? What if she dies? And so we're, we don't want to put him in that position, you know, or put ourselves in the position. Kent Hughes says this, if we become ill, and if we think God is prompting us to call for the elders to pray the prayer of faith, what if it fails? Won't people think we're unspiritual? And Kent says this, remember, greater Christians than us have sought healing and failed. It is better to fail in attempt to exercise faith than to let it lie dormant and fruitless. God never belittles those who attempt to follow them, but he does chasten those who refuse to attempt anything for him. Also, both faith and the prayer of faith are gifts. Who knows when God will choose to give them? to us. You know, if 
is the prayer of faith, is the elders, is that prayer that the elders do, they know, is that a guarantee? Is this a magic formula? No. There's plenty of examples in Scripture of people who prayed for healing and weren't healed. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says he prayed three times for this thorn in the flesh that, that he called it, some ailment or something that, that plagued him. He prayed three times for this to be removed. And it wasn't. Roger Ellsworth says, it comes down to this. The sick person is to call the elders. The elders are to anoint and pray. And God will do as he pleases. It's really a submission to God issue. Are you willing to submit to God in every aspect of your life? Are you willing to say, I put my life in your hands, God. If you heal me, great. If not, you get the glory and it's all good. If someone isn't healed, is the reason that someone didn't get healed a lack of faith? Sometimes we go, oh, I prayed, but I must not have had enough faith because I didn't get healed. So clearly I have to work harder at being a person of faith. That doesn't even make sense. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that, that faith is a gift. It's the gift of God so that no one boasts. That doesn't even make sense. The problem is we see faith as something we work for. We try really hard to have more faith. It's not faith in the result. It's faith in the one who can make the result. Let me say that again because it's so important. Faith is not faith in the result. It's faith in the one who can make the result. That kind of faith is a gift. Do I have faith to trust God with results even if I don't like them? You know, when Paul asked to have those afflictions removed, here was God's answer. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. When you see it in Paul's life, Paul's lack of being healed was a testament to the grace of God and brought glory to God as God worked in spite of Paul's weakness to do amazing things. And this is how the church should, church should live, humbly submitting herself to God, relying on the sufficiency of his grace. You see, God is asking that you and I have the faith to go to our elders and say, pray over me, anoint me with oil. Why wouldn't you ask the elders to pray over you? You know, some of them, and usually all of them, are here every single Sunday. It's not like you don't see them. They're here. They're around. They want, all you got to do is say, will you pray over me? Yes, I will pray over you right now. Let's go. They want to pray for you. At the end of the service today, we're going to specifically make this available to you. Some of you need prayer for healing. You, maybe you need emotional healing. Maybe you need physical healing. I don't know what kind of healing you need, but God's talking to you right now and saying, yeah, I need healing. And, and, and I need to be obedient. And so after the service, uh, later on, we're going to have a chance for you to go back there and, and find some chance to be healed. In verse 15, James says that, it's pretty cool. He says, the Lord will raise him up. If he's sinned, he'll be forgiven. I love that. If he sins, he'll be forgiven. 
Is, there, is sickness the result of sin? N- no. But maybe sometimes. But we can't just go, oh, I'm sick, I must be a sinner. Well, we're all sinners. But this must be a direct result. And we can't s- certainly say, you know, Thomas has had, his whole his household has been sick for a long time. And, you know, clearly the Cacklers are worse sinners than the rest of us. Which may be true anyway, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's not, the, the point is for us to not go, oh, sickness, you're a bad sinner. Look at us. We'll stay in, condemn, in, in condemnation over you. Sometimes we ought to look at our life and go, God, I'm laying myself bare before you right now. And if there is any sin in my life, Holy Spirit, bring that to bear in my mind right now so I can confess it and deal with it. I think this is, James has Mark 2, 9 in mind when he's saying this. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but I think he does. Mark 2 is where the, 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 the friends, they bring their their paralyzed friend to Jesus and they try to get him in the house. And the house is so packed with people that Jesus gets in, is inside. So they go up on the roof and they cut the hole in the roof, which I don't know if that family had homeowner's insurance or not, but you know, I wouldn't appreciate a hole in my roof. Nevertheless, they really wanted to get to Jesus. So they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down on this mat to get him to Jesus. I mean, can't you just see this chaotic, crazy scene when this is happening? And so they lower the guy on the mat down to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them, sees their faith. And you know what he says? He says, your sins are forgiven. Time out, Jesus. I didn't come here for my sins to be forgiven. I want to walk. Jesus always has this knack of identifying the real issue. And then for the sake of him and for the sake of the Pharisees that doubted Jesus that were there, he says, take up your mat and walk. And then he heals him. I I love how Jesus does that. He cares about something deeper than our physical healing, but he doesn't ignore the physical issues. I don't, very rarely is sickness just a physical issue. God is always working in our hearts and in our lives. And when sickness and when things are difficult and trials, God wants some, something spiritual to be happening in our lives. Something bigger is going on than just God being a magic genie or a really cool doctor. He's always doing something bigger. Healing is God's kingdom breaking through. Let's not ignore that. Let's not ignore that God does really heal people because his kingdom is breaking through to this world. And we look forward, like we talked about last week, to the day Jesus comes back and he makes the wrongs right and he takes sickness and he removes it. And right now when God heals people, it's, his, it's the glimpses of his future kingdom breaking through right now. It's amazing. All right, we got to keep going here. Um, the third thing is a- ask for healing. So we humbly rely on God instead of on our own pride. We keep his word. We give God credit. We ask for healing. And then the fourth thing we do is confess. We do it by confessing. Look at verse 16. <laughs> this one is awkward, okay? Just for all of us. Therefore, cons- confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Uh, and we don't like to do that. I mean, really? 
confession? Like, I don't want, what if people really knew my sin? Would they let me be the pastor here anymore? What if people really knew your sin? Would they, would they give you that look when you came to church? So it's better to just not confess it. Let's just hide it. James doesn't give us that option. He says, confess our sins to one another. I have an accountability partner. He's been my accountability partner for 10 years. So we've been doing this a long time. Every week we talk on the phone for an hour. It's vital to my spiritual accountability and development. It's essential. I have to have that conversation with him every week. A while back, um, God had laid a particular sin of mine on my heart. I asked him to do that often. This particular behavior of mine was especially heavy. This particular attitude was especially heavy. And I, and I confessed to God. I said, God, you know, uh, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I confessed. And I knew I was forgiven. But it weighed so heavy on me. It was taking a toll. And I kept saying, it's confessed. I'm forgiven. That's the truth of Scripture. And then God plops James chapter 5 right into my mind, as the Spirit does so often. Confess your sins one to another so you can be healed. And that weight, that hurt, that heart, as I told my accountability partner and just confessed it all to him, this act of doing life together, this act of being in in relationship with him as I confessed, I felt like the shackles and chains and scales of my heart just peeled away. I mean, it's this beautiful picture of, of the body of Christ actively being involved. And he said to me, I forgive you. I forgive you for not telling me for this long. I forgive you. And he affirmed the fact that God had forgiven me. Did I have to do that to be forgiven? No, I was forgiven. Was there healing that had to take place in my heart and confessing it? To him was part of that? Absolutely. Friends, we need each other. This is the way God designed us. You were not designed to be all alone. You were designed to need the body of Christ. Who do you have in your life? I know it's risky. If I tell this person and confess to them what's going on, they'll probably think I'm an awful, 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 terrible person and not want to talk to me anymore. I can't promise you that won't happen. It's risk. It's a huge risk. You need someone to whom you can confess your sins. It's godly. It's right. It's what the church is supposed to do because it brings life and healing. Confess. That's how the church should act. The church should keep our word. We should give God credit. We should ask for healing. We should confess our sins to one another. A fifth thing James says is that we should pray. In, in verse 16, uh, James recounts an example of prayer from, from Elijah. Um, the last half of verse 16, he says, 
Um, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And he's then going to tell us about Elijah and give us an example from Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we we see this prophet Elijah. He's a prophet of Israel. Um, Elijah's goal and mission was to, from God, was to try to, to preach God's word and set the kingdom back on their track, on track following God. And, uh, and so one of the things that God told Elijah is pray for no rain and I'll give you a drought. And Elijah did it and no drought for, no rain for three years. And then at the end of three years, Oh, I don't even have time to tell his story, but there's this cool story of Elijah going up to Mount Carmel and he squares off with the prophets of Baal. And in this great story, you know, he's taunting them and they've got their two altars there. And and Elijah says, you know, whichever, uh, whichever God calls down fire from heaven and consumes their altar, uh, that's the real God. And, and, oh, it's a great story. Go read it. Cause, cause God shows up in this huge way and boom, not only is the sacrifice gone, but the altar and the stones and the wood and the water, boom, disappears. And, and, uh, and God's name is made great. And Elijah has this great victory. And then he stands on the corner of the mountain and he prays. And, and he tells it to the servant, hey, do you see a cloud? What do you see? And the servant says, nothing. So Elijah prays again. What do you see? Nothing. He prays a third time. What do you see? And the servant looks out and goes, I see this tiny little cloud, like way off in the distance. It's like not even the size of my pinky. Elijah says, saddle up. We got to get out of here. And so uh, the, the storm is coming and this deluge comes. And James gives us an example of a normal guy like Elijah who prayed and had extraordinary results. My challenge to you is to pray for people. Because God really does move through prayer. He, it's really active. He really moves through prayer. Pray for people. When you, when you open up your, the word of God, pray for people. Let God bring people to mind. I woke up at 1 a.m. the other morning because I couldn't sleep. And God brought about three people to my mind. And I just prayed for them right there. Pray. Pray as you're walking down the street. Pray in your car. But James, it's important to see, James tells us to pray, but James mentions prayer in the immediate context of relationship. He's just said, confess to each other and pray. So James doesn't primarily have in mind, pray in your closet or pray in your quiet time or pray in your car. James has in mind here, pray for each other. That's scary. It's scary. But let's say you're at church and someone tells you something tough. You know, they're going through a really tough situation right now. You should here in this room, if you're on the Sunday gathering, grab them by the shoulder and go, I'm going to pray with you right now. And take 30 seconds and just pray for them. We should do those kind of things. We should pray. So many people have a fear of public praying. Well, I, I don't do, pray, I pray plenty of my own, Dave, but I'm not a person that likes to pray in public or pray with other people because that's just a really personal and private thing for me. And so don't ever ask me to pray in public. And I just say bull honky. That's not scriptural. The body of Christ is corporate. Get over it. Do you know how you develop confidence in prayer? Is you do it. Just try it and fall flat on your face. It's Okay. You know, put your hand on someone and say, I'm going to pray with you right now. You want to blow someone away? Someone away? Next time someone's 
moaning and complaining to you about work, say, I want to pray for you. Whoa, thanks, I think. Or you really want to blow them away? Okay, you're going to think this is weird, but you got this issue going on, and, and I really believe God moves and acts. Can I just pray with you right now? It'll be like 20 seconds, and I'll, no one will even see it. All right, I'll just do it right now. Can, can I pray for you? Is that okay? I don't know of anyone that would say no. I mean, some people might, right? But most people, they're not going to say no to that. No, you cannot pray for me. Some people would, but most people are going to go, thanks. I appreciate that. Let's just be people who pray. It's powerful and effective. All right, number five, six. Number six, this is it, right here. We, the ch- this is what the church should look like. Remember, we should humbly act by keeping each other from wandering. And this is maybe the toughest, most difficult passage or verse in the whole deal. James ends with the kicker. You know, he doesn't pull punches. And so it's fitting that he should end with the, probably the most difficult thing for us. He says, my brothers, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover, cover over on the mul- multitude of sins. This is the toughest because we're prideful and we all know it. And generally we hate conflict and our culture says, stay out of my personal business, Right? Like we want people to be involved in our lives, but not too deeply because they might tell us something that we have to change. And so as Christians, we just pull off of that from the culture and go, hey, you stay out of my life. Who are you to judge me? Get, it, get out of my life. I'm going to live my way. You live your way. We'll all be good. Just leave me alone. That's what the message that we generally say and give each other in, uh, in, in the church today. But the Christian life wasn't meant to be lived alone. We need each other. So what does it mean to wander from the truth? Well, clearly in James, it's not to lose your salvation. That's not what James has in mind here. He's not talking about people losing their salvation so they better go regain it again. That's not what it means. There is a sense in which he's talking about, clearly in James, a a doctrinal error. You know, I mean, that's kind of easy, right? You know, if if Bob Sofer here goes, uh, you know, I, I think this Trinity deal is overrated. Uh... I don't really like the Trinity. I, I think that we have three gods. And, uh, you know, like, <laughs> time out. That's wandering. I mean, so there is the aspect of doctrinal error, absolutely to it. But in the context, it's really, it's bringing someone back from this prideful, self-reliant state. It's helping someone to live like Jesus wants. That's when we come alongside someone and it's not, hey, buddy. You need to shape up because your action stinks. It's, how can I help you to look more like Jesus? In fact, how could we do this together? That's true friendship. Man, if you see a husband not honoring and leading his wife well, not sacrificing for her, you got to come alongside him. Women, if you see a woman not honoring and respecting her husband, you've got to come alongside her and say, let me help you. If, we, if you have a friend who's totally forsaken the church, he's given up on organized religion. You've got to say, no, you can't. You need the church. You've got someone who's defrauding their employees. You know someone who's not paying the bills, who's just in it for greedy gain and not. You've got to come alongside and say, that's not how a follower of Christ should live. 
Maybe you have a friend who's totally pursuing materialistic gain. We should come alongside and say, Jesus has something better for you. See, living like Jesus means gently getting involved in the lives of others. It's how we turn people back from wandering from the truth is as important as the fact that we turn them back. And the passage doesn't guarantee success. Our obedience to God doesn't mean all will be harmonious and perfect. The point is, we love someone enough to speak truth. And when we walk with them, they know we care about them. And so they can hear that. I think the bigger question in all of this is, the the bigger question is, are you willing to let somebody speak into your life? Are you willing to let someone speak into your life? Because many of us are not. The other day, um, I had a friend, (laughs) good friend, and he pointed out to me something I had done wrong. It was a mistake I had made. It was clear I was going to need to apologize. As I heard this, I had two simultaneous reactions internally. The first reaction was, Oh, no, you don't. Uh-uh. I am Pastor Dave. I am the spiritual guru. You will not tell me that I've done something wrong. That, <laughs> that reaction in my heart was quickly disbanded by the Holy Spirit. And the reaction I had was, thank you, because I want to be more like Jesus. Are we willing to let people speak into our lives? With humility, are we willing to rely on God instead of our own pride? Are we going to keep our word, give God credit, ask for healing, confess, pray, keep each other from wandering? There's this just whole myriad of ways that we need to act and be like Jesus. As I wrap up, I just want to let you know this. There was a situation that had come up a while back. And uh, it's a situation where a person in the church at that at the time needed access to the general assistance fund. And his pride wouldn't let him ask because he didn't want to admit that he needed help. So his wife came <laughs> and asked, right? He goes, I, I don't know how this is going to work. And I said, well, time out. You guys got to be on the same page here with this deal. Right? And so um, about an hour and a half later, he calls me. And he says, Dave, here's the thing. My pride doesn't want me to do this. My pride says you should just be able to take care of all these problems on their own. But then he says, but I know that that's not how the body of Christ is supposed to work. And if anyone in the body of Christ had trouble and they came to me, I would bend over backwards to help them. And now I know God wants to use this in my life. So I'm going to swallow my pride and ask for help. It's a position where I'm submitting to God, not me. Today, um, I don't know where you're at, and you mean, just might need some kind of healing today. Maybe it's emotional healing. Maybe it's healing from your own pride as you feel God working in your heart. Maybe it's a physical healing. But our elders are available to you. And as I pray uh, and close us, Peter's just going to strum a little bit behind me, and 
And go back to in the back. All of them will be back there. They're going to have oil. They can anoint you and pray over you. You can go into the to the room there in the back of the back behind the tables there, or go over by the pop machines here. And if you just feel like God is calling you, I want my elders to pray for me. As I pray and close, just do that, would you? Just get up as I'm praying. Go there. They'll pray over you. And then in um, just a minute, we're going to uh, ask our ushers to come up as well and and take the offering because we apparently totally forgot that today. So uh, um, talk about ruining the moment. But anyway, I just want to pray and really we'll take care of the offering later. But um, let's just pray and ask God to move and work here. God, um, we ask that you would make us humble. And God, some, some of us know that you've been making it, working to make us humble for a long time and our pride hasn't led us. And so we long to be the kind of people who humbly submit to God in every area. Yeah, we do pray for healing. We pray for brokenness and beautiful healing of Christ. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're active and working in this body. Thank you that you've given us each other. We pray that your name would be glorified as a result of who Waukee Community Church is, how we act as a church. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.